All right. P- day after tomorrow is our fall picnic. So I guess we're all going to, uh, everybody's ready to go out to the picnic, right, Ann? No? That's right, you're not going. There's something came up, that's right. So we have, Karen's our substitute control officer, quality control officer there. Okay, that's the only major uh, major announcements to remind everyone about the picnic Saturday, and then, and it looks like the weather's going to be uh, fabulous, may be just a shade warm, but mostly it's going to be very good, so uh, we can be thankful for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer and um, ask his guidance on our study this evening. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer first to give everybody the opportunity to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed... Grateful to be here this evening to be able to study your word, to understand some of these tremendous truths that are taught in your word, how wonderful it is to learn of our salvation and all that you have done. And as we look at so much that is here in Romans 3 and 4, where we understand that while salvation is simple, what had to be accomplished on the cross was really quite complex because of all of the complexities that are the result of the sin problem. And so, fathers, we continue our study, probing grace and probing your character to understand how you were able to provide such a wonderful salvation. We pray that we might come to an even greater understanding of who you are and that you would use this to stimulate us in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When well, Romans 3... Last time we got through the basic part of Romans 3.25. I want to go back and pick up a couple of ideas, cover a few things I uh, sort of skimmed over at the end last time. But I also want to go through, and as we go through the rest of chapter 3, I want to pick up on some key ideas here that that are presented. This is really a tremendous text, and I think that as we look at this, one of the most... Uh, significant passages in all of the Scripture for understanding the character of God is in this verse where, which I started last time, at the end of verse 25 and on into 26. 27 to 31 just provides us with a good transition, sort of a review and transition into the next 
uh, chapter, which gives an illustration of justification through Abraham. I think it's uh, very helpful to understand that if, that the the illustration, and I always try to think in the Bible and these major doctrines, what does the Bible use for a major illustration to teach the point? Usually uses something from the Old Testament, some concrete historical event, or uh, in some cases an object like the Ark of the Covenant, the Day of Atonement, the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, or a person, an event in a person's life in order to uh, teach uh, uh, truths that to many people can be pretty abstract. So, Romans 3.25, speaking about Jesus, the personal relative pronoun there, whom God, that is Jesus, whom God set forth, as a propitiation by means of his blood, which is a, uh, a reference to his spiritual death on the cross, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, last time I spent most of my time looking at two key doctrines mentioned in uh, verse 24 and 25, redemption. And whenever we hear the word redemption, we think of payment of a price, payment of the penalty for sin, the legal penalty God assigned. And then the second major doctrine was propitiation, which speaks of the satisfaction uh, that was accomplished on the cross, that, that Christ's death satisfied the righteous demands of God, satisfied his justice, so that then God would be free to save us, because God was not going to compromise his righteousness and his justice in order to bring us to salvation. This is a very important passage to understand what God does in terms of his justice and righteousness and love. Because we live in a culture today that has a major problem with understanding righteousness, which has a difficulty understanding absolutes, and has, as a result of that, I think, a tremendous difficulty understanding love. There's a... We, we're... Uh, it's obvious to most of us that there is a major problem in this country with parents understanding parental love. And there's a tremendous problem with uh, adults, sometimes that in many cases using the term uh, only in terms of their chronological age, not in terms of any maturity, uh, the adults understanding love. Because if love is based on integrity, and integrity is based on understanding the concepts of righteousness and justice. If we don't understand righteousness and justice, we're not going to understand love. Those three things really do go together in some remarkable ways in the, in, in the Scripture. Because for God to bring us to salvation, his, that which moves him, that which is the ground of his action, so to speak, is love. For God loved the world in such a way that he gave his son. But that love is not what the average American usually thinks of love in terms of some sort of sentimentality. And so because we have a shallow view of love, we have a shallow view of God. And it's also difficult because we have a relativistic moral standard 
And if we think about what that means is, is that if, if real love is, has to be based on something that has real stability, real integrity, and we don't really understand integrity because we believe in a relativistic standard of morals, then we can't really have love. And so you just you look at family breakdown, uh, marriage breakdown, family breakdown, breakdown with children, breakdown in all kinds of relationships. And then we have this a new factor that comes in that really sort of exacerbates the whole problem, and that has to do with what's occurred in terms of the technological revolution with all of the social networking over the past 10 years or so, because especially with smartphones and teenagers and kids to very young ages now are getting these phones, and you'll see them in a crowd, and instead of talking to each other, they'll even just just be texting one another. There's a loss of the ability to have a personal relationship because they're focusing so much on all of this stimulation that comes from from the quickness and the speed and all of the other and the glitz that goes with a, a internet or a virtual um, environment, and all of these different things just work together. So it's an extremely complex problem. You can't just go out like a lot of people say. Well, we can solve education problem by fixing. Uh, we just need to pay teachers more. The education problem is really the symptom of the breakdown of the home, the breakdown of a lot of elements in culture that cannot, that you can't throw, there's not enough money in the world to throw at it to solve the problem. It's related to a virtue problem. It's related to a, a love problem. It's related to standards. It's related to the breakdown in the home. It's related to all these different things. And the only way to solve it is, is if there is a return within a culture to something that gives stability to everything. And that can only be God, the immutable, eternal God of the Bible. If we're away from that, then there's nothing on which to base anything, and everything just becomes, um, it's, it's building a house on shifting sand. Now, that's sort of the introduction. I will come back to that before we're done. But God sets forth Jesus as a propitiation by means of his blood. So the propitiation is done by means of his blood, not the setting forth. It is through faith that the propitiation is then applied or realized in an individual relationship to God. But this is done to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, we have this same phrase, the same kind of phrase, back in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the, from the law is revealed. And we have it back in the first chapter of Romans, which also talked about the unveiling of the revelation of the righteousness of God. As I pointed out, this is not something secondary to God. It is not a... a, a as some have tried to describe this as something that God gives that's separate from his character, it is talking about the quality of his very own righteousness, his very own character. Now, righteousness here is, we'll look at the word a little more in a little bit, is the Greek word dikaiosune. When you just take that ending sune and put it on a, a noun, dikaios, it talks about the quality of something. So it's talking about the quality of being righteous. And so what God demonstrates here is, is 
his integrity. The word there that's translated to demonstrate is a Greek word, induxe, which indicates something on the order of making a um, an experiment. You go into a chemistry classroom, and when you make an experiment, you should know what's going to happen before you do the combination of chemicals or whatever that you're going to you're going to uh, you're going to do. So you, a, a, an experiment is not doing something to figure out or to see what will happen. That's how many people use the word experiment in in everyday language. And we use it that way, and we do experiment in that way. You may go into the kitchen and say, well, I'm going to try this, and you're going to add this and do that and see what happens and see if it works. But in in, in a science setting, when we do an experiment, we're trying to prove or demonstrate something that we already know to be true. We've proven it through the use of formula and other other things. So what God is doing is he's putting on a visual demonstration or a visual proof giving visual evidence of his righteousness this is god is saying at the cross this is how righteousness and love works and i'm showing you this because this is the prime example for that so he demonstrates this at the cross and then we go on to read because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, the word here that is translated forbearance is the Greek word anoche, A-N-O-C-H-E, anoche. It's a noun. Now, anoche is an interesting word because it's translated correctly as forbearance, and forbearance in English and anoke in the Greek are both words that are used in a legal context to describe what happens when someone, for example, a banker, abstains from enforcing the payment of a debt. Okay, it's a legal term to describe what happens when a banker or someone who uh, is, is owed money, abstains from collecting the debt. Now, sin is described in a couple of different places as a debt, and the sin penalty is described as a debt that is owed to God. So what we see here is, an, is that God, God puts off or God holds back on fully enforcing the penalty of sin in terms of divine discipline, divine judgment. In the period of the Old Testament from the time of Adam's sin up to the time of the cross, that he chooses to set to not fully judge within time. I'm not talking uh, the judge sin because it hasn't been dealt with yet on the cross. So he chooses to, to abstain from collecting the debt payment from everybody from Adam to Christ because he knows that the solution and the debt payment is going to be made when the second person of the Trinity enters into human history and goes to the cross and pays the penalty. 
So forbearance is a, is a significant term. It's used the same way in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 63, 15, in a passage that is addressed to God, we read, Look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? And here there's the statement then, are they restrained? And this is a, the same word that is used there indicating that putting off of something. Romans 2, just turn back a page, is another example of this. Back at the opening part of Romans 2 in 1 through 4, I pointed out that as we went through this study that the righteousness of God condemned the immorality and the licentiousness of man in Romans 1, 22 down through, or 23 down through the end of the chapter. And then in Romans 2, 1 through 4, there's a condemnation of the moral man. Righteousness is saying you, you, neither achieves or lives up to his righteous standard. And at the conclusion of that little section, I pointed out when we went through that, the break really occurred between 4 and 5 and not 5 and 6, as some Bibles have it. In verse 4 we read, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? And goodness is more than just his righteousness. It's sort of like the expression of his righteousness. It's somewhere between talking about the righteousness as his as the standard of his character, grace is the expression of that standard, and goodness is a form of the expression of that uh, righteousness and that grace. Do you despise the riches of his goodness? And then there's another noun after that, and, and all three of these nouns, goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, are objects of the term riches. The riches of his goodness, the riches of his forbearance, and the riches of his suffering that God has postponed the punishment of sin out of, from his volition because he knows that that full payment will be taken care of at the cross. So forbearance is related to God's patience. God's patient because he understands the time frame. He doesn't look at time the same way we do. So it's not that God is permissive towards the sin of humanity from Adam to Christ. It's not like he winked at sin. It's not like he says, oh, well, they just don't know any better. There's, there's no sense of the reduction of his standard in order to be good and kind to the human race. See, what happens in hu- our finite human relationships, is, and I'm using and I'm applying this a lot to parental relationships, what we see a lot is parental permissiveness and the reduction of, 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 a, of an absolute standard of behavior and expectation of, a, of children living up to that standard because parents want to be kind. They don't understand, there's this failure in our culture to understand that love for someone is expressed both in terms of providing them with uh, wonderful things in life as well as expressed by bringing just punishment on someone. One thing I hear a lot, I've heard for years whenever I teach on the uh, on on the love of God and how we are to be gracious to others, forgive others, 
just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us, is that some people have difficulty hearing that because they don't look in, except but in one direction. It's like the, the, the person who says, well, we can't execute the criminal. They completely fail to understand that executing the criminal is an act of love for society and it's an act of love for the victim. And if you don't execute the criminal, you're not loving the society as a whole because you're letting evil run rampant without punishment. And if you don't execute the criminal or punishment, depending on whatever the crime may be, or punishment, punish the criminal severely, then you're not loving the victim. You're letting somebody get away with this, with crimes, with abuse, with theft, with whatever, on innocent people, and so you're treating it lightly. You reduce the standard of righteousness in a culture for the sake of love. And you, th- these are not mutually exclusive when you think of it in terms of Scripture, that a love that isn't righteous isn't love, and a righteousness that isn't loving isn't righteous. They're not mutually contradictory, and yet in, in human viewpoint that's often presented that way. This is the classic argument that, that you hear, uh, and we often express it this way in terms of Satan's, ju- uh, Satan's accusation against God. Well, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And the real question is how can a loving God not send his creatures to the lake of fire? Because we, we have such a, such a diluted and impotent view of love because we have a diluted and impotent view of righteousness. And the two things go together. And so this passage is teaching that God, though he passes over or postpones the punishment, chooses not to lower the boom fully on the Adam to Jesus uh, dispensation. He is doing it because, but he never reduces the standard of his righteousness. That standard is going to be satisfied at the cross when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, receives the full judicial punishment for all of those sins, all the sins from everyone in the Old Testament, all the sins everyone after the cross. All of those sins are poured out on the cross so that God's righteousness which is the standard of his character, is going to be fully satisfied. He doesn't have to compromise his standard. His justice, which is the expression of that standard, is also completely consistent with his righteousness, and it doesn't have to change any, and it's not, it's not diluted any, it's not reduced in force in any way, because it's fully satisfied at the cross. And because righteousness and justice are then both fully satisfied at the cross, God's love is free to flow in providing salvation for everyone in the human race. And as you think about this, and today as I was reflecting on this, it just really hit me how how profound the essence of God is, as we, we just don't take enough time to really meditate on these dynamics and then to think about them in terms of how they really impact relationships that we have. 
We live in a world of such superficial relationships where people just have such difficult time understanding these things. And so, as I was sorry to say a minute ago, you have people who, when you talk about forgiving others, they, they, and I've heard this for years, you'll hear it in a lot of different contexts. Well, does that mean that if this person has wronged me? And so you go to uh, the passage in, uh, in, in, in Matthew um, when, when Peter asks the, uh, the Lord, how many times should we forgive him? The Lord says 70 times 7. And so when people hear the word forgive, what they mean is that, okay, I'm just supposed to rip open my shirt, throw open my arms, put the dagger in his hand and say, stab me again. That's not what the Scripture says. Not at all. Because to you know, an act of loving someone who is an abuser is to, that they in, go through punishment and suffer the consequences of their abuse. Someone who is a criminal, they should suffer the consequences of their f- criminal action. Now, you can get involved in mental attitude sins of vindictiveness and anger and... Uh, maligning, and that destroys the integrity of your motivation. See, when God punishes, he doesn't punish from this position of self-righteousness. He punishes from a position of integrity. And so we have to recognize that in expressing love and forgiveness to someone who's a criminal, someone who's maltreated us, someone who has abused us, that... In in real love, that means I forgive you, which means two things. It means negatively, it means I'm not going to cave into bitterness or vindictiveness or hatred or mental attitude sins as any part of my uh, mental attitude and how I deal with you. But on the positive side, I'm going to do what's right for you, which means that there are consequences that must be uh, that, that must be that you must endure because of the wrong actions that you have committed. You don't reduce the standards of right and wrong in order to love someone. And forgiveness is an action, action and expression of love. But we live in a culture which thinks that which has juxtaposed love and righteousness in such a way that you either love someone or you hold up a high standard. Or you lower your standard, elevate the love, lower the love, elevate the standard, and the two go together. They are not mutually exclusive, but they are mutually dependent. So that someone who says that they love you but has no integrity, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything when they say they love you. They're just expressing a, a shallow sentiment that has no enduring quality to it because it has no integrity. And someone who says that they they love you, that has integrity, you know that that means something, and it is not something that is just frivolously communicated. So in these two verses, we have this demonstration of God's righteousness at the cross. Verse 26 goes on to say that he demonstrates at the present time his righteousness, So this is all about the demonstration of God's righteousness. It is a visible demonstration, a visible picture 
for all of humanity to understand what love is and to understand what righteousness is and to understand what justice is and how they, how they work together without compromising one another. So the cross is to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that is the character of God, that he might be just. So God is going to remain just without without minimizing that in any way or compromising it in any way, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what, what Paul's indicating here in this rigorous little devel- development, rigorously logical development here, is that not only does God remain just in the way he deals with sin at the cross in the fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, has made sin for us, but that God is then able without sacrificing any measure of partiality to provide a justification for every single member of the human race. Now, we know that people are born in different positions, in different, uh, different conditions. You have the obvious distinction in this, in this passage between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew, as we've already seen in chapter 2, is born in a position where he enjoys certain privileges that are the result of God's blessing to Israel, but they have nothing to do with how he relates to God. He's given certain privileges. He's given certain promises. He's given the word of God, prophets. He has a covenant relationship with God, but that doesn't get him any closer to salvation than any Gentile in the farthest reaches on the earth. It only means that God has blessed them in some ways, just as there are some people who would be born in Athens or in uh, Egypt or somewhere else in the world to aristocracy, and they would be blessed with certain position and privileges in life, and others would be born at the lowest rung of the social strata, and they have nothing. But in terms of how the justice of God deals with each one, they're all equally condemned because of Adam's original sin, And the solution for all is the same, which is trust in Jesus Christ. And they all have equal ability to trust in the gospel. So that is the point of the text showing that God, um, that God blesses them without distinction and other passages that talk about the fact that there is no partiality with God. In Romans 3.22, if you just look up a couple of verses, We read, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. See, God, because salvation is totally dependent upon God's character and his integrity and his justice, and his justice is completely impartial and treats every human being the same way, it has nothing to do with their individual circumstances, some having more, some having less, God is able to provide a perfect salvation. Now, if we had time to think about that, just to give you something to mull over when you're in the shower in the morning or while you're going to sleep at night, think about how that applies to, that whole concept applies to understanding the operation of justice within the judicial system of a nation. And how that, that indicates that for justice to operate from a nation, from a top-down viewpoint, this is how the Founding Fathers thought, it doesn't matter whether those who come before the bar of justice 
are rich or poor, educated or uneducated, black, white, yellow, brown, whatever, those circumstances are irrelevant. What matters is that there is an objective standard that is um, that is embedded in the legal statutes and that it is applied equally by a judge. That is an objective view of the law. But once you start getting away from a firm belief, either as an individual, as a family, or a culture, in absolutes that are set standards that never change, then all of a sudden what happens on the judicial bench within the legal system of the United States becomes subject not to what happens above in terms of those external standards, but it becomes dependent on what's happening below in terms of the circumstances that surround the individual that is standing before the bar of justice. And once you start basing justice on the circumstances surrounding the individual that's standing before you, instead of on an objective external standard, then that the application of justice becomes a farce because it becomes dependent upon totally subjective aspects rather than something that is objective that can be equally applied without, without distinction. So we see the, the perfection here of God's character and, his, and how it's worked out in his whole plan of salvation. So in essence, we see, first of all, the emphasis on the fact that God is righteous. Now I've got the Greek word up there, dikaios, for righteous, based ultimately on the noun DK, so it has various forms, and, but the, that's what the root is. And it's righteous is a word that relates to a standard. In the Hebrew Old Testament, you had the phrase ascetic. Uh, Same idea. It re- relates, it establishes a standard. So righteousness, with the addition of the uh, suffix N-E-S-S in English does the same thing as adding the suffix sune in Greek. It uh, uh, emphasizes the quality, the qualitative aspect of the noun. So righteousness becomes the standard of God's character. God's character is really the standard. Now this gets, this is another one of those things that we have to think about. We come out of a culture and a history going all the way back to in ancient civilization to Greece, where a lot of these ideas like righteousness and justice are thought of as abstract ideals. They sort of exist like they hang out there in space by themselves. That's a very platonic type illustration. We have this ideal of righteousness, this ideal of justice. And so we think God is righteous, so God measures up to this ideal of righteousness. Well, that's, that's completely backwards. What the Scripture says is God's character, what God does, how he relates to people, how he relates to his creatures, defines righteousness. Righteousness exists nowhere as an, as an abstract ideal. Its ultimate expression is within the very person of God. Something is righteous not because God, God, it conforms to some sort of external quality, but because it conforms to the character of God. His being defines that standard. How he does things defines righteousness. Now, the second aspect here is God's justice. 
God is perfect justice. Justice is the application then of that perfect standard of God's character to his creatures. So God has a righteous standard that never gets compromised. His, his justice always applies it without distinction, and he, he <clears throat> does not give any benefit to a creature for this reason, that reason, this circumstance, or that circumstance. Notice that the word for justice is the same word as we had for righteousness. See, it's dikaios, both places. Have the same thing in, in Hebrew. And that is because the context is going to tell us whether it's talking about a standard or the application of the standard. The, the word, the concepts of justice and righteousness are inseparable. So third point here is that God cannot compromise his righteousness or his justice because God is immutable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he can't, he can't ever do anything to compromise his justice. But we are told in numerous places in Scripture that God is also love. Now, notice the phrase that we have here, God is love. How do you know what love is? Same way you know what righteousness is. You can only do it by looking at God's character because there's not this abstract ideal that sits out there somewhere in Hollywood in a romantic movie or some novel that tells you what love is and that love is X and God conforms to X. That's how we treat it. You look, try to look love up in a dictionary, and it's not a very, they're usually uh, descriptions and not definitions, and, it's, and nobody gets it right. It's always an emotion. But love in the Bible is not an emotion. Love in the Bible is an expression of kindness from the character of God as he seeks to bring about the best for the object of his love. Now, as soon as you use the word best, you know, you go back to your to basic English, you have your comparative adjectives, you have good, better, and best. That immediately brings in a value judgment. How do we know what is best for someone? How do you as a parent know what is best for your child? How do you as a husband, commanded to love your wife as Christ loved the church, how do you know what is best for your wife? What you want? No. Because one, one week it's this and one week it's that. That's, that's awfully changeable, awfully mutable, awfully unstable. So it can't be your character. It's got to be based on something that has complete, perfect stability and never changes. And that can only be the character of God. And so for a husband to be able to love his wife as Christ loved the church... He has to constantly be pursuing an understanding of the character of God. And that his understanding of the character of God has to permeate his character in the process. So God is love. That means his very character defines what love is. So the only way we can ever learn what love is is to go to the Scriptures. When we look at, at, at the fact that God in the Old Testament, let's just take some fun examples that the liberals hate and always go after. In the Old Testament, you have, uh, you have this God who shows up in Genesis uh, 18 and 19, and he, he sends two angels to the, to the five cities of the plains, among which are Sodom and Gomorrah. 
these cities God has allowed to live to the fullest extent of their sin nature, and they are rank with open sexual sin, not just homosexuality, but everything. And when these these two angels who appear as men come and they are invited into the house of Lot, all the men in Sodom and Gomorrah come around and 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 they're trying to knock down the door of, of Lot's house in order to be able to take one of these men and rape them all night long. I mean, it is just such a, a horrid picture of sexual perversion. And God loves the human race and Sodom and Gomorrah so much that he obliterates everyone. Now, you usually don't hear that from the pulpit of the first Methopresbyterian church because that doesn't fit our concept of love. How can a loving God do that? Well, how can a loving God not do that? Because as a loving God, God's got to protect the rest of the human race from the cancer and the malignancy of rank perversion. You get another example a few centuries later when the Israelites come out of, out of Egypt and they're headed to the promised land. God's going to give the land that has been occupied by the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites to Israel. Well, that's not fair. That doesn't oper- that, that that's not a, how UN resolution one umpty dump one works. We have to be fair to the people who were there before. So God's wrong. See, man has a false sense of what righteousness means because he has a false sense of what love is and vice versa. So God is going to allow in his permissive will allow the inhabitants of Canaan to pursue the joys of their sin nature to the fullest extent, and God gives them grace so that at any number of points they can respond to uh, the general revelation of God in creation and turn to him, and God would revoke the plan of punishment. But they don't. So finally their sin is ripened to the point that God is going to give the, the land to the Israelites, and he's going to destroy the inhabitants of the land. And, in, and that means that they're going to be killed, all of the adult men, not just, but not just the adult soldiers, all of the men, all the old men, all the young male babies, all the women, all the grandmothers, all of the mothers, the pregnant women. And I'm trying to cr- create as graphic an example of this as I can because this just rubs against the, the, the value system that our culture has drilled into us. And God tells Joshua at the Battle of Jericho that they're to kill every man, woman, and child, every single inhabitant of, Josh, uh, of, of Jericho. It doesn't matter that they're only a week old or two weeks old or two months old or three months old. It doesn't matter if they're uh, 80 years old and they've got Alzheimer's. Every single one has to be killed. The world says that's, that's not loving. The Bible says that's precisely what it is. That's loving. It's not abusive. Now, when it's motivated by sin, not by righteousness, but by sin, then it becomes, it would become abuse, it would become tyranny, it would become cruel. 
But there comes a time when the act of love towards 95% of the human race means that 5% of the human race has to be executed in order to preserve the health of the rest of the body. Just as in uh, cancer surgery, you're going to cut, go in and cut out part of the body so that you can save the rest of the body. That's where the focus is. Love, love focuses in two directions because God is going to recognizes that with the perversion among the Canaanites continuing, their culture is just going to be immersed in greater self-misery. So it's an act of love to put them out of their misery. And it's an act of love to protect the rest of the human race. So his love is operating at multiple levels. You look at other examples down through the centuries when God removes the Israelites from the land because God gave them the land and then they disobeyed the law. God in his love, because through all throughout those passages, there's the emphasis on the faithful, loyal love of God, chesed, his love for Israel based on the covenant. And because God loved Israel, the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and the people were uh, tortured, horribly murdered, and were uh, taken and transported in, uh, to different parts of the Assyrian Empire. About 150 years later, it happened to the southern kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar came in three times and God brought them there. Uh, this is what Habakkuk had such a problem with. As Lord, you got to do something about these horrible people here in Judah. They just they they they're 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 self-centered and they reject the law and they're immoral and they're selfish. You got to do something about it. God said, "I am. I'm bringing the Chaldeans here." Wait a minute, Lord, you can't bring those horrible, unrighteous, idolatrous Chaldeans here. Well, sure I can. That's love. I've got to punish the wrongdoers in Judah, and I have to be faithful to my covenant because that is an act of love. If I'm not loyal to the covenant and execute punishment, then I've violated the covenant and I've compromised my integrity. So all of this is how we are to understand the complexities of what love is. Love isn't the Hollywood version of Valentine's Day. There's a lot more to it than that. That's part of it. But love has a lot more dimensions to it. So love, many times, while on the one hand it says, I forgive you, but at the same time you are going to suffer all of the consequences for the wrongdoing that you have committed. They're both true because to love someone does not mean you compromise righteous standards. The two have to go together or it's neither righteous nor love. So we look at the character of God. As we have so many times, the ten basic uh, characteristics, the sovereignty of God, he rules over his creation, his righteousness and justice, the standard of his character, the application of that standard, his love, which is the expression of that to the human race. Uh, he's eternal. He's omniscient, which means he knows all the knowable. He, he takes into account every single factor in every decision, and there's nothing that he d- doesn't already know, and there's no surprises. So his knowledge is, is perfect. He's present to everything in his creation, so nothing escapes his notice. He's omnipotent, which means he has the power to do whatever he chooses to do. He's absolute truth, and he doesn't change. 
But it's these three elements, the righteousness, justice, and love of God, along with his truth, that comprise the integrity the integrity of God. And they work together, and they always have to work together. You minimize one, you destroy the other three. So they have to be in a perfect, perfect balance. And what this means is that God can provide a perfect salvation equitably and offered equitably to every human being because it's not dependent at all on anything anybody does. It doesn't depend on one person having a higher IQ or lower IQ, one person having a greater motivation or a lesser motivation. No human factor can enter in to create an inequitable situation. So this is why Paul can summarize this the way he does in verses 27 to 31. He asks three rhetorical questions in verse 27 in order to drive home the point. A rhetorical question is a question that is asked without expecting an answer because the answer is apparent. So he says, where then is boasting? Well, it's obvious. It's excluded. If it's totally dependent upon God, there's nothing for man to crow about. Where is boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Now, look at this. this I, I just saw this this afternoon. I have to work through this in some other passages, but it, it's, you know, every now and then you, you see something and say, well, isn't that interesting? By what law? A law of works or the law of faith? Now, let me ask you a question. What is always juxtaposed? You've heard this. Most of you have been around Christianity since you were, you, you were a small or large child. What is always contrasted with faith? I mean, with the law. What's always contrasted with the law? Grace. In the Old Testament's the age of law. We're in the age of grace. Again and again and again, it's grace law. Uh, grace law. Grace law. What do we have here? Faith. Is it the law of faith or the law? I mean, the, is it is it the law uh, of uh, works or the law of faith? Law of works or the law of faith? It's not works versus grace. It's the law of works and the law of faith. There's still a law operating because the law establishes the fact that there are external, unchangeable absolutes. So it's not a law that's based on works, that is human effort, but it's a law of faith, depending upon God to provide the blessing. And so then Paul comes to a conclusion. Therefore, he says, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, when we look at this in the Greek, we have a present passive. Actually, it's, it has an active meaning because it's a deponent verb. But we have a, 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 so we'll just say present with an active meaning a verb of logizomai. Logizomai is the word that we'll run into when we get into uh, the next chapter in chapter 4, verse 3, when it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's a word logizomai. It has to do with thinking something through, uh, reckoning something to be true, uh, has a range of meaning. It's related to logos. It's, it's a verb form, and it has to do with, uh, it's a thought word. 
And so we, it begins by saying, for we conclude, we have thought through these issues now, and we come to the only possible conclusion, having thought through everything that has been said. Therefore, for we conclude, a man um, to be righteous, a man to be righteous, apart from the works of the law. We conclude that a man is, uh, is justified, rather I said righteous, is, is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. A man is to, literally it's a, it's a uh, in passive infinitive there, a man is to be justified by faith without or apart from the works of the law. So he draws this conclusion demonstrating that, that works of the law can't justify anyone, so we have to be justified apart from the works of the law. And it has to be that way, for with God there is no partiality. There's no, dis, there's no distinction with God. This is why he in verse 29 he goes back and says, well, the only other option is for to have a God of favoritism where he's going to treat the Jews one way and the Gentiles another way. And so he says, it's, or is he the God of the Jews only? Well, the implication is no, he's not the God of the Jews only. He, he created all human beings. He's also the God of the Gentiles. And so because he's the God of Jews and Gentiles, the plan of salvation has to be the same for all. Verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, so that both the um, circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles, will be, will be uh, justified by faith. Now that first phrase... Uh, those uh, God who will justify the circumcised from faith, and there it uses that that other phrase, the genitive of uh, pistuos from faith, and so it's indicating that it, it, it's just another way. Of, they're both saying the same thing through faith and from faith are just different ways of saying it, but it's both based on faith. Now, when he says this. We go back to the end of the last chapter. Paul had been dealing with the guilt of the guilt of the Jews, and he uses circumcision circumcision as his point of reference. And he said in verse twenty-five, "For circumcision is indeed profitable." See, there was nothing wrong with observing the law. What was wrong was observing the law for the wrong reason. So there is is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, even if you you break the law, circumcision doesn't matter. You are as if you are one who is not circumcised, not a member of the covenant community. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Who's more righteous? The circumcised person who completely flaunts and disobeys the law or the uncircumcised who keeps the law in every jot and tittle? Who's more righteous? 
See, circumcision, his point is circumcision isn't what gets you uh, the grace of God. And that's the same thing he says here. God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith because the principle of salvation applies equally the same thing for every human being. Verse 31, do we then make void or invalidate the law through faith? No, the law had a purpose. The law was the constitution for Israel. The law was designed to show people not how to be saved by their works, but that no matter how much effort they put into it, they can never be saved by the works. And so by emphasizing faith, it doesn't invalidate the Mosaic law. On the contrary, what it does, it establishes the law to be exactly what it was intended to be. It validates everything that is said in the law, which was to point out man's inability, not human ability. That wraps that his explanation of justification by faith through by uh, justification by faith. And the illustration then begins in the first verse of the next chapter, so we'll start with chapter 4 next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think these things through. We pray that as we reflect upon your essence and reflect upon your character, specifically in terms of righteousness, justice, and love, that it may help us to see Uh, have some insights into our own relationships, our relationship with you, our relationship with our spouses, our relationship with our children. That love is a love that is, has to be righteous and just. And righteousness and justice have to be expressed within the context of love and that they are not mutually contradictory, but they are necessarily compatible and mutually dependent. And, Father, help us to apply these things in a consistent way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.